25 years of Vampire the Masquerade presents Requiem for Rome. Hey folks, DJ here. I just want to take some time to talk about Werewolf the Apocalypse Retaliation by Flyles Games. This soon-to-launch game is brought to you by the same team that's bringing you Vampire the Masquerade chapters, and they just released a trailer to go along with it. We at 25 invite you to check it out at werewolfthepocalypse-retaliation.com to catch a peek at the trailer and be updated of when it'll appear on Kickstarter, which seems to be already 2022. The game promises to have everything that made chapters endearing to us, the fans, including scenarios, investigations, beautiful miniatures, and more. With that, Thanks for your time. All right, folks, welcome to another cool edition of Vampire Requiem. Uh, this week, we're going to start the epic. I do mean epic. It's going to take a while, folks, by our projection. Three episodes, in fact, uh, for us to go over Requiem Rome, right? For a lot of fans, this is a must book. We agree off the bat. We'll tell you it's an amazing book. And we don't really have time to say a whole lot other than that. Um, what I'm going to do real quick, though, is I'm going to thank Brennan and DJ for being here, guys. Hello. Hi, everyone. Fantastic. Always good to be here. Fantastic, and that's good politeness out the way. We're going to kind of give you an idea how we're going to do this. Number one, um, today you're going to hear the uh, the intro and talk about the forward a little bit, um, because this is one of those books that have fantastic content for that. Um, what do I mean? Exactly what I said. The people who put this book together knew what they were doing. Is the first thing I'm going to tell you off the bat. There is so much good content that when you start reading this book, it's hard to push it to the side. The artwork alone, right? This is one of the few times I'm going to tell you. Uh, the interior artists who did this, we're talking uh, John Christopher, Trevor Claxton, uh, Jeremy Anessio, if I'm pronouncing that name right, Matt Hughes, uh, Mitchell Koch, uh, Matthias uh, Kolros, Justin Norman, uh, Marias Tapia, Rich Thomas, and Kathy Wilkins. My hat's off to you. And of course, the cover looks amazing as well. Um, why? Pound for pound, the most powerful imagery I have seen uh, since that, that we've reviewed thus far has come out of this Requiem book. I mean, back when me and Nate did a first episode all the way up to this book is that good. Your content for wanting to envision what Rome was like, what that era was, how scary it was. But from a vampire's perspective, they capture it like from the first art piece. Right. It's just on and so forth. Right. Where you have that Roman guy holding the body in the water. But he has those horrible, like monstrous eyes and that kind of almost grin of him feeding in the cold, dead corpse. Mm -hmm. What a beautiful imagery to tell you what's going on, right? He did, uh, it's, it's Rome, right? We know what it is and it's understanding what part of Rome. But then there's another piece I want to talk about in the book as well. The one that haunted me, honestly. I see it and I have it like, I literally have it on my background on my, on my device right now, too. It shows, to me, it, it reeks of like satanic imagery almost. But it's not, right? It distinctly isn't. You have a creature that's enshrouded in a bloody shawl that's obviously a vampire, but arrogantly, and he must be an aristocrat, maybe a member of the Senex, which we'll explain in a second, who has his hand out, palm down with a ring, sort of like a kiss the ring gesture. But down in front, amongst the rats and the offal and the bits of what must be flesh, there are these women just coated in blood. You know, and you overlook the fact that they're they're kind of nude, see-through, because that's the flesh and water clinging to them where they're at. At the backdrop, it looks like something's burning. And there looks like an upside-down cross that might be. 
or it might be across in the distance. And that's how the art went, but it works well. That serves as a backdrop and it's a black and white. It's powerful imagery, right? It's like majesty meets horrific meets that enthralling captured romanticism that exists in there when power play gets to be brought in. And you don't even feel it's a thing that's even remotely sexual as much as it is almost an awakening. Like he's introducing them to what they did. Like maybe they, the three of them just got done with a frenzied feeding and he's walking up afterward like, how did you dine? Tell me what you learned sort of thing, which I thought was awesome. What'd you guys think of the art in this book? I thought, uh, I also thought it was amazing, but I had a different uh, take of that specific picture you were taking up or talking about. I thought that was more reminiscent of like a, a Lankayan missionary, missionary spreading the word and raising them up. Because if in that picture, right, there's like dead rats around them. I pictured them as like on the lower strungs of society and them trying to bring them into the fold. It's interesting, right? That's what, that's what art does. And and I say that because like we we can both be moved by this like piece of artwork, but uh, we have completely different interpretations of it. And regardless that it's different, we still feel strongly about it. Right. And I think another thing that also matches with the artwork is um, there are certain pieces of art towards the end of the book that have uh, marble reliefs and or busts. But what makes it more evocative is putting that aside with these types of images that we see now. You could see where. Um, it invokes that statuesque feeling of pale vampires who are near that level of forsaking their humanity, right? They don't have to be out there because there's a necropolis, but we'll speak about that a little bit more. But the image almost reflects where that walking statue kind of comes into play. It almost gives me like that movie version of like Queen of the Damned, what happens when they drain Akasha and she just becomes a statue at the end before she starts breaking apart. But where you could see where, okay, I get some imagery from it and it gives me an idea of it that I could play around with. But if you're a fan of history and understanding Rome, which is this book's for you, I'm going to point that out. Not because of the it's historically accurate and dead on where there's a section that we'll get to as well. I hate doing that. There's a lot we want to get to. Uh, but the part I want to hammer home is because you just get this book. And if you're just listening to it and you have it, this book is designed to talk about not when Rome is at its height and its foundation, although you certainly could play there, as always. It's talking about Rome almost in its decline, just as it starts, right? It's all based on Rome disintegrating is the theme and mood that it wants to, to, to elicit to where it's just eroding, right? And it's uh, all its power starts going away. Not immediately, right? You're obviously not going to run a chronicle. At least I wouldn't where it's like the players are there for one session and boom, it's gone and everything's cast away. Unless you're doing a hierarchy chronicle like that. But when you start reading this book, there is just too much that you can push players through. And I mean by push. Well, let's face it, sometimes players are watching more of a movie as the plot moves them and just rushes them along the current than they are necessarily making waves and making changes in what's going on. And this book supports both levels of play when it comes to that. And these events, man, they're they're intense, uh, to say the very least. Now, part of it here that we'll roll into is the fact that you want to talk about clans, right? It's, if you're listening right now, it's like, all right, guys, great. You love the book, but like, what, what's, what do we got? We got clans, like you know them, right? It's going to be your typical five, right? The modern clans do exist. However, there's one swapped out, right? You have Gangrel, Nosferatu, Maquette, Deva. But then you have a clan called the Julii, not the Ventru. The importance of the Julii, we definitely will dive in deeper. But understand the Julii has to be their own, um, probably best said bloodline to understand it in that regard. And they're unique in their formation. Is And, you know, they're not to be confused either. A lot of people have stated, you know, when you get this book, yeah, the Julii are the predecessors of the Venture. It's actually not correct. 
It's a it's a distinctive difference that they have, although very similar. And you're not mistaken to see that that could be there in the correlation, but dig a little deeper and you're going to find that difference. I like how they do that. They also highlight in the social strata the differences here. For instance, the maquette, they're not seen as Roman. The maquette have mm-hmm. an African uh, tie as in them where they're coming from, so they feel like foreigners. So even if you were of Roman birth and you're uh, embraced into the maquette, you're treated as if you're foreign suddenly because your blood wasn't from here. This this highlights that Roman strata, right? If you're not now, you never were. It's sort of how they're treating that. At the same time, it's sort of an old style term because we know the empire eventually starts having an earning system. We can earn your way into the citizenship of Rome, so on and so forth. Not so to the kindred. You know, the uh, propinki, as they call it, the uh, upper nobility of Rome is still in action even amongst the damned. But there's more. When you when you also look at that clan distinction inside in here, you're also going to find the organization, of course, known as the Camarilla. In fact, you can't escape it. This is the existing night society that you're probably expecting uh, to be there. Someone, you know, where all the covenants are represented, a prince and whatnot. No, uh, what you have is is that the Camarilla itself is an organization that is composed of the Julii who formed it. They begin it, and they give all the foundation for it. There's the Senex, the ruling body itself, or kind of mirrors mirrors what Rome has, right? There's a Senate that rules in Rome, but there's also, or I should say, begins the policies of Rome, the rich, upper strata, you know, from their rankings, all that stuff, great things happen. But then the Senex is the Night Society version, or the Camarilla version. Uh, You have the the Legio Mortum. Uh, This is the military arm uh, that they have here. That's your soldiers. You have the cult of the augurs, um, a religious union, basically. And I do mean union as in it seems like you can belong to them in a capacity in the Camarilla, and uh, they do augury. I mean, they're going to tell you the future, oracles and whatnot. It's sort of a mystic bent. Uh, if religion's accepted, it's going to be there. And their interest is more manipulative, it feels, right? And we'll dig into them a little further. Uh, the Peregrine Caligia, if I'm pronouncing that correct, they're the lower class. They're the catch-all for the rest of the vampire populace. And there's a fifth, right? One that people don't like at all. And uh, it's growing in popularity, if only, amongst the uh, the, the lower class themselves, uh, because it's a religion offshoot that's inside the Perian Collegia, uh, which challenges the status quo. Now, that's because directly in this book, the time they have it in, you have two things that are going on that are pretty interesting. And there is a religious sort of battle, I'd say, war that's going on amongst everyone. Because an important theme of this book that they hammer home is that it's Rome. And in Rome, there is no sense of sin. They don't make any pretense about they feel sorry for doing something. Now, for anyone now listening to this, you're alive. That's going to shock you. Your morality says there should be a right and wrong. And indeed, yes, of course they had a right and wrong. But if you think the right and wrong you feel now is the same as the Romans had, you're wrong, right? They right. do not feel the guilt you have. They don't understand why you would even have it, right? Decadence is its own reward, as it said. And Caligula has a bunch of quotes about that, right? Um, like I'll paraphrase one where it's like, for you would be too expensive to do, but if you're Caesar, huh? Right? <laughs> See, <laughs> Caesar gets his due sort of thing. That's kind of like like how they are. But, you know, the shocking part about this is that the way they do this in the forward and they tell you about they start telling you about events they paint this picture 
of how you should feel about Rome, right? They use mm-hmm. cool ass phrases like in this time, right? I always love it when that happens, right? When you think about when the oceans drink Atlantis and you think of Robert E. Howard and Conan, right? How that setup is, you're riveted, you're hooked. It's immediately immersive. It's drawing you into a mindset that they're wanting you to have exist. They do the same thing here in painting what's going on. And their whole introductory section is to set you up that Remus and Romulus is the thing, but they're, we're past that. Uh, so I don't want to step up Brennan's toes. I know we already had something talk on that. So I'm going to leave something to the, uh-huh. the kitty there for that. Um, but they uh. talk about Remus and Romulus and they move on from there. They talk about the fact that you have uh, the Roman mindset, but the Roman mindset from the mortal half at this point differs from what the vampires have because they are living, they believe they're walking from ancient Rome, right? The vampires are there. However, they even talk about these vampires now that are in this book exist three centuries after Remus and Romulus. They're not living the glory days yes. of Rome. They're living in the uh, the twilight of those glory days, right? Which is where this story takes place. They're now saddled with the religious war um, where they have the uh, Orion cult, as it's called, versus the actual Christian cult or the Catholic cult. Um, that distinction has to be made clear. Orionism is kind of strange because it looks so similar to Catholicism, yeah. right? Now, if we know Catholicism, you have the Holy Trinity, right? That's that's uh, God, the Holy Ghost, the Spirit, right? The embodiment. They, they Christ really God is three things, right? It's very hard to do it and call it one of the great mysteries. You're not necessarily going to get all of it, but the concept of the Trinity, correct. right? Uh, in fact, it's something one of the Roman emperors they tell a cute little story uh, that I looked up that was adjacent to it about how to understand it. When I was looking at probably a hard understanding of Catholicism for people who don't get it, um, the Holy Trinity is all. Right through the three holy trinities, God, you know, Christ is God. He's the Son. He's also is God. There's God. There's Christ and the Holy Spirit itself. And those three things are best understood as you know the all being that is God needed to be understood from a mortal perspective. I.e., what the mortal condition is like and understand that, and it's believed becomes Christ part of it to understand and experience the world. Then it understands that that free will that it gave the angels and gave man, they need an out. Right, as if you know, they need an escape from sin. If they don't have that out, what are they going to do? And so, Christ offers of Himself. God offers of Himself to be sacrificed for our sins, and you know, transubstantiation, all that. That's all there. <clears throat> it's so it's such a strong belief that the Catholicism has that there's 1.1 billion people um, who absolutely worldwide believe in it. Right? Look at Rome. Look at the Vatican. It's there. However, in this time, which is important, there's Orionism. Not to be confused with Arianism, which is completely different. Okay, we got to do that. Got to <laughs> yes. definitely do that because I had to look that up. I'll be honest. I said, "Is that is that that is not that is not what I thought." I had a similar reaction, but I was like, "All right, I know this had something to do with Persia around this time." Is this is this from like Persia? Is that? Oh no, not right. <laughs> it's not now. Arianism holds that the son is distinct from the father and therefore subordinate to him, and this is the problem with Catholicism, right? It's saying that, you know, Christ is real, of course. There he is, because he existed in this time. Like, and I want to hold you to that. Like, understand that it's possible and not unheard of if you have Jesus, the figure, kind of walking around in your game. But I wouldn't make him the focus at all. That's me. Because that's one of those things, like, you know, it's a great figure, super important. It's there. It's almost more important to play around outside. There's too way too much. I'm going to say this, and people are going to throw stones at me. I am not saying that Christ is not an important figure, of course, especially uh, from a, from a Catholic's point of view, 
and what would happen there. But remember, he embodies the frailties of man. That's the important part. It's too tempting to make him like an aura that destroys all vampires that touch him and things like that. Or greedy players want to alter history and jump and do something different. It's it's one of those things that it's like if you play a game where you have Kane in it, you're better off never bringing Kane in it. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Like another part of the world, some so focus yeah. on a game that you can deal with that isn't going to be game over, man, the moment we mess with it. Because who knows? And so they glaze over it. Like they write it to where it's like, sure, yeah, here, but no, not here. Because one of the mm. things I'm going to point out is, is that remember the time is after this guy? You know, whoever Christ was, was here and dealt with. And we're in the twilight of that. And we're still here. But nothing stops you from going back that far, which is why I even bring it up. I just, my advice, don't do it. And they kind of, you know, bring it forward anyway. But these two cults are going at, well, I say cult in a gentle sense from a Roman perspective. They were indeed cults. Of course, from the time. Right. I will say to add on to it, right, why it's important and why we bring it up as well is because because Rome is in its twilight, you have to understand that Rome is already taking from everything as it is. Rome is not an original idea. Rome had already subverted Greek cults, uh, religions, mysteries that were brought into it. The Christian, the Christian version of it also doesn't get, it, it's not exempt to it. And the reason why it's brought in is because now that it's twilight, it's one of those things that you start to see where Rome is really starting to crack. Because as these people, as Bob was mentioning before, it's a very attractive offer considering that all the people who are plebeians are now having to look up and they have to rally behind something. This also will tie into the Lincea and Sanctum at one point or another. And that's why it's important because from a political aspect, this is where you start seeing the shift of those who had versus those who hadn't and those that recognize they could do more with it. So it's a very strong political tool at this moment in time. So within context, I just wanted to tell people that's why we bring it up. And there's there's amazing parts here too because just the, the influence that I loved about this book that they include here, it's a little excerpt. That And this is why it's a start stop in the book, because as we were going through it, all three of us were like, last two days, we're just like, man, there's a lot I want to go through. What do we want to do? And it's hard to do because mm-hmm. you're gushing on the book and you're sitting here going, mm-hmm. you know what a Cairo is in Christianity? They mentioned that. What the hell? And you look that up and I'm like, I forgot about the Cairo and the fact that the Eagle Standard of Rome was supplanted. Right. Mm-hmm. I will tell you, I have seen this symbol yes. so many times in my life. I never knew what it was until until we started talking. I understood it as a Roman army symbol, and I just thought the eagle was still used. Uh-huh. It just wasn't here. It wasn't as they put it in the book that, no, this was actually the replacement for it, is what it became as Rome evolved, right? It's a, it's a Christian pictographic symbol in a way to put it, right? It's Cairo right. using those two symbols, uh, right? I believe it's from the Greek alphabet. Uh, the Greek word, excuse me, Cairo, and it's the beginning two letters of Christos to refer to Christ. Right now, when you think of that, I took off my glasses and sat there for a second and said, "Holy shit!" Most people, when you refer to the power of the the, the Christian army, you know, Deus Volk, God wills it. Right, that you think of that and you think to yourself, "Oh man, that was in a time where it was a dark period; nobody knew any better." Blah blah blah. Rome was an enlightened society. Rome knew what they had going on, and it was the, the the will of an emperor that made this happen, and this brought it out. But now they have faith backing what they're doing, which means there was influence of, of, of Christians that have it. But he, they even point this out to say, this isn't enough. You can understand, you now exist in a time where, granted, that happened. You have another Roman emperor that will take the throne, and he tries to bring back the pagan rites and practices of, of Rome of old. And he'll try to bring it back, and he will try to oppose uh, Christ, and it's it's not going to work. Right, it's, it, it fails, and it's the whole empire takes a different turn, and it's highlighting the fact that all these events go on, but it does this to paint a picture of what the Camarilla is, of just how powerful it is, 
that through all these events, no matter what the social problem was, whatever issue was going on, the Ninth Society of the Camarilla still held through many mm-hmm. emperors. We're talking Caligula, right? The mad emperor known for decadence, tyranny, incest, forcing himself on officials' wives, and then parading these guys in public, bragging to them about betting his their wives. And these officials, no doubt, being shamed, what happened to those wives, right? It's like, what, what, what do they have to do? They have to restore their honor. These are men who don't have... I don't know. It's I, I won't get into that, but there was because there's story after story about what might have happened and most likely happened, and then the historians kind of going, "Oh, it was kind of an ugly situation." Well, why? Well, because this piece of shit emperor is going around doing this, but because he's emperor, you can't tell him no, mm-hmm. right? Think of that power you have. You can't do a damn thing about it. And going on, allegedly taking his sisters to his bed because he was a fan of Egyptian practices. Sent people to discover the Nile and what life was like down it, which is like one, it would have been a good thing for Rome, except another emperor did it better because all that Caligula took back from it when he went there to say, wait a minute, they the pharaohs sleep with their their own, huh? They preserve the blood. Yeah, I should start doing that. I got some sisters. Ah, oh, wait a minute, my sisters weren't particularly good. I'm known for my debauched sexual interest and and decadence. So let me turn around and pimp out my sisters to the right officials and soldiers I find in good favor. What? This this dude had some issues and leads to a violent end. Night Society lives on. Nero. We'll just say Nero's emperor at 17. If you thought absolute power corrupts absolutely, it absolutely does. And he lives up to the hype of that. However, not at first. At first, as it turns out, when his mother's around, he does fine. But when he kills his mother, the question you should ask yourself, because I, I found it frightening, before psychology, before there's any mental health or social help or coping mechanisms, here's a person that sits up and has a mother to be his only morality. And supposedly a mother, Agrippina, if I remember her name correctly, was a very powerful figure to help him establish that morality. Well, in these politics here, she, well, let's just say she crosses the wrong people and kind of a tough figurehead lady. But most importantly, she comes between her son Nero, which is the emperor, and a love affair and meets a a tragic end at the hands of Nero. Well, when that's done, Mm -hmm. he changes. He becomes very dark indeed. And from there, it's just downhill, right? We're talking his two wives meet horrible ends. Such a horrible end that the way the story goes, one wife was barren. His his accusation, she's barren. She doesn't bear him a child soon enough and are together for like six, seven years, I believe. And then he finds this other lady and he knocks her up first and marries her afterward, wants to marry her afterward, cites that his first wife, who was, by the way, known to be dutiful, known to be loyal and a, and a great wife and a great match, publicly tried to defame her as being barren, thus not good for the emperor, and tries to divorce her. However, understanding the way Rome was, it didn't meet good favor, right? Because the the citizens do, the plebs and all that, have a say. "Ah, It's not good for the emperor, you should keep her, was basically what everyone's saying. It's not, she's barren, is she? Like, you know, don't worry. Pray to the love goddess. I'm sure fertility will come sort of thing. He's like, nah, I can't. Now, why can't he? It's very simple. This other girl in the wings, he got her pregnant. Right. That's how it went. So mm. what happens is she kind of goes to exile and they say, bring her back. And he said, oh, you're going to defy me and bring her back. He has her killed. Right. He has her in a warm bath and he has her veins split, cut open, blood in a bath, cuts off her head and has it sent to his new wife. Right. His new wife is such a cold bitch that apparently she brings the severed head to Nero. Right? And that's great. And before you think it ends well for her, like what a match made in hell, 
this guy ends up, when she gets pregnant again, they come at crosswords, right? They have an argument. Nero kicks her to death when she's pregnant, right? Mm -hmm. This is stuff that the soldiers and everyone has sit back and watch. And you got Patellus and Vespian and Trajan and Antonicus and Marcus. You have all these people. But the point they make in this forward, which was so impactful, was the fact that it doesn't matter. The Camarilla still marches on. Their influence only grew. The more that these Roman emperors came up here and proved their infallibility, this is how the Knight Society gained in strength. They had the right people at the right time to make sure, at least as the book tells it, it didn't fall apart. But Brentron, because I don't want to steal your thunder here, for anyone who's a historian, you're going to go, this is bullshit. This is not exactly how things pan out. There's no society to hold it together. What are you doing? What do you got to say to that? I think that... um. No society holding it together. The uh, this being a game, right? The the standpoint that they take, they they go on and set a, a baseline for it, right? And that is they they go and they uh, to tie in what you were talking about. It wasn't just the emperors that were this depraved or or this uh, bloodthirsty, right? It was Rome. It was Rome itself. The while the emperors were engaging in all of this, there was intrigue and murder and debauchery at all uh, levels of the of the patricians, right? Of the people that were engaged in the Senate, and even even the the regular people. They, this in the forward to this book, one of the first things they start talking about is the death toll that Rome has: right. the hundreds of thousands of people killed in the gladiator pits alone, not to mention the death tolls rolled up in all the campaigns that Rome made. To tie into what DJ said earlier, Rome itself is a vampire. The way its empire was built and the riches of Rome gathered was by going and taking what they wanted or needed from from other civilizations around them. And even some of the most widely well-regarded emperors in Rome, like Marcus Aurelius, he killed, he had 400,000 Goths and, and Gauls killed in his campaigns alone. So you can imagine where, like, all this blood is flowing through. And as that's going through, the vampires, they're the propinki, as they're called in this, the uh, which I believe actually means, is like a Roman equivalent to the word kindred, you know, being on blood, so do the vampires at night. So adding to that, though, this is important, and I think, for the three of us, especially because that forward was written by Kenneth Height, it was the biggest hype machine we've ever read because we have to compare it to something. We must. You have to have to have to compare it to something to say, why would you ever write about Rome when you have so many other settings? And especially when you're looking at it from a mass grade perspective and we had Dark Ages, it never really centralized itself in one location unless it was speaking about a clan like Zemis and we're off in Transylvania or in the Balkans, right? Or there is that touch base when we do deal with Rome but it's in comparison to what Rome did in order to bring down Carthage, right? That's another thing that we also had to like take a look at as well. But why Rome? Why is it centralized in Rome? And when you take a look at this forward, and especially what Brentron was just bringing up right now regarding how Rome's equivalent is literally... It, if you take a look at it just as the way that it's written right now, what makes Rome any better than what we assumed Carthage would have been as it was written in Masquerade, considering the Bali and everything that was running around? It's not anywhere near off. It's actually just the same, but it's normalized because that was the human world. And that makes it such a great setting for a story to be told because nothing is off limits because even humans were running down this route. 
And because the machine, as Bob was mentioning, and all you keep seeing is success, so long as the machine going, baby, no one's stopping it. And that's also both its greatest, like, propulsion device, but it's also what's going to lead to its downfall. But that's what makes it such a great setting. And the scary part about this is that when we, we keep referring back to, like, why would the people behave this way? And even though I already mentioned about that morality, I got to go back to that theme and mood. You got to hammer home here, right? With that disintegration of the backdrop, it's because there is no morality as we know it, right? If there is no sin and no concept of redemption, why it, you would live life to the fullest. Think about it. You would live it as best as you could. Treachery be damned. It's a way to see your needs met. It becomes a very selfish existence about you climbing the top and getting there no, no matter what. You're going to be up there. And you may feel sorry for something. I, you doesn't mean you can't feel guilt. It means because you can still relate. If I've never been told what right and wrong was, I could relate to what it is to do something to someone weaker than me and understand that I wouldn't want that to happen to me. Right? Because at some point, me growing up, it must have been everyone experiences this. You get bullied or some some point you get passed up and an unfairness happens to you. Why would you want to do that to others? Well, maybe want to do it isn't has any no 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 way in about that. It wasn't that you wanted to do anything other than you know that when you want something, you have to take it because somebody else will if you don't, is what you've been shown. And there's no necessary, well, there's no thought of, you know, turn the other cheek, right? You won't want that to happen to you. Why are you doing it? And there's no thought to it. Well, when you have that, put it to a kindred sense, right? This is Vampire Requiem. And when you think in that regard, you know, humanity, <laughs> humanity, humanity is fated <laughs> to, to dwindle to nothing. That's what it's there for. They accept this. The immortals know that. They say that's part of the curse. When you're made immortal, what's going to turn you? You're going to turn into a monster one night. But however many centuries that takes is up to you. And so they fight to resist the beast at all possible chances, but they don't hold to guilt when they do something. Right? I'll try not to kill you, Brennan, and your slave when you come over. But if you bring back that slave that reeks of garlic again, what am I to do? Right, I understand they make food for your soldiers, but I I told you don't, please don't. I I'm not myself in those moments. And Brendan's like, well, now I know how to get them. Right, walks mm. in with it, and I slaughter them. Right, I slaughter these slaves and whatever. And Brendan's laughing, pulls back a gob and drinks some of the blood, points at me. Oh, how many more of those can you do, huh, Bob? Just saying. Or Bobakis Maximus Aurelius, whatever oh, it would be. Um, that's that's how it is, and I'm like going, man. When I, when I think of it, I keep getting this sensation of like, I want to play this game now, right? Because players would be shocked to learn, oh, you frenzied in the city and you tore it up. Well, who saw it? Well, of course, they're slaves that saw it. The slaves crawl all over the empire. They definitely outnumber the Roman citizens like by a, by a staggering amount at this point. So th right. they see it, but what can they do? To a lot of them, well, all Romans behave like you do. Wait a minute, I'm a monster who frenzied and tore through people and killed them? What do you think that looks like to a child who was part of a village when Roman centurions came through and put them to the torch, made roads over the bones that they had, took slaves of their parents and themselves, whoever lived, and said, you're coming with us, and made them a part of the empire, and made them take their goods that they had and harvest and drag it to Rome as riches and plunder? That's a monstrous experience. It's trauma we wouldn't understand. But to live in that era, and to see that kindred aren't so far different than life at that point, that's a very interesting perspective. Now, obviously not to the extreme, we're referring to the morality here, but you got to hold on to that dark fruit because it definitely rots. And it rots in a very interesting way. When I mentioned that in this time, what the forward is telling you 
you're going to live through this entire rise, fall, decline, the whole nine. At any point, you're going to start a game here, and you can. From Remus and Romulus and all that to the founding on through, and you can play through it, have fun, have a day. But what it gets to is the fact that eventually all things end. That's the beautiful thing about this book that I enjoy. Remember, the empire crumbles. It falls. It falls hard. Because when it talks about the first, like, two centuries of emperors and all that stuff when the, the death of the Republic turns into the empire itself. And that's what it is. And they're Caesars now. And you go through that and they weather it. That's cool. They then watch it right, you know, right on the vine, as it said, because then it's a hundred years where the bathhouses, I couldn't even imagine this, but even reading about the actuality of it, they get clogged, right? The sewers start backing up. Mm-hmm. There's just too much. There's Uh-oh. no infrastructure. There's no repair, Right. There's all this stuff that makes what the Empire was worth being a part of. There is too many people crammed in one territory without a thought to increase it. Because of this, one of the amazing things happen is barbarians start taking shots at Rome, seeing it stumbling and falling. Soldiers are attacking and claiming the title of, of basically the Roman Emperor title is up for grabs. A whoever has the power to grab it, and that gets sloppy bloody. But the kindred during this time are even better where it talks about they, they devolve. They turn into these things that are hunting with these armies when they go out to battle so they could feed at, at whim. That's all they understand and they mm-hmm. could do. Because with their empire gone, what social society do they have? Right? That's where they're at. And it's just falling and it's there. You know, that's not everybody, but a percentage of them do have that. But the Camarilla still is clinging on to what it has. And you get to ride that all the way to a point. And then it tells you at the very end of this book, Keep actually at the beginning, it tells you this. The next book is The Fall of the Camarilla. Right. Right. Yeah. This all ramps up to a second book. Badass. Right. So you know that you can have that campaign beginning and done. It's all written for you. At what point do you want to start living these events? And that is well done. Fully agreed. I think another thing that's also worth mentioning, and Brendan, you also hit upon this, especially when you started upon it, was the history. What before I harp on it, what is your take regarding history regarding this particular book and as vampires see it? Well, overall, um, th- there's a, a phrase thrown out in this book that's history isn't important. Now, before everyone jumps up at arms, is like, what are you talking about? History is, of course, important. This is a setting book, right? It is. What's not important is the... Um, this book is not going to go over like all the details of Roman history, right? You would not, as as they even say, you're not going to pass a history exam with what's in this book. <laughs> Likewise, I what's in your game doesn't need to be in there. Now, certainly, everything Bob's hit on, like a lot of stuff that's happened in Roman history and culture, and those are important things. But having the um, or those can be important things, right? Adding to the theme or the mood of your your story or being focal points of it, but don't get bogged down on details and minutia when they don't add or contribute to the story in some way, right? There's a lot that can happen in these historical settings, in Rome especially, because it's so easy to get sucked in to the to the setting if you're fans of it like, you know, we are. What I will also add to that, and I think what was the best nice little jab that they kind of stuck in there is... Even if I was thinking about playing a Roman game, I would play it as if it was a flashback. Why? Because all these stories that are happening right now are also through the lens of a vampire. And we forget the fog of ages. And not every vampire is going to remember Rome in the exact same way. You live long enough, those memories are going to distort. 
So what happens if that story you're telling just happens to be a distortion of what that vampire or your coterie of vampires who have lived so long see it that as that way? That also starts changing a lot of stuff because that's exactly why history isn't too important because if you play that type of game, you never know whether or not Bobacus will remember whether or not he slaughtered Brentron. But then when he sees Brentron in the mm. 20th century, he's like, didn't I? No. And then the stories start to roll back to find out what may or may not have happened during that period in time. Now, I do want to highlight something, too. Um, when we talk about the history they have going down here, you may be like, great, I look up every event that's in here. No, you don't. In fact, they, they hyper-focus on what events you could focus on. Get as detailed as you like, add what you want, don't add, stick with what they have in the book only, do all that. Um, and what they do is they give you a timeline. Starts with the kings and the republic itself and how that's done. Roman mm -hmm. or Rome founded by Romulus. And they get into that and they chart this out step by step. And I adore what they highlight on because it helps you focus, right? It helps you go, okay, great. I'm, what scenes am I going to run onto this? What will my players care about? And you're following a, it feels like you're following a canon plot they already made. And because you're doing that, you, you're free to focus on what you should have been focused on in the first place. The story your players are trying to tell through their characters. Right? I've had a privilege of playing this campaign before, and i got to say, um, first off, I'm going to take my hat off to an STH you guys probably heard of already. Uh, uh, Ray Jenkins ran me through this before years ago. A long time ago. Ray Jenkins and the ST vault for the Sabat guide he did for V5 as an alternate, you know, just to kind of appease folks and do his take. Mm -hmm. uh, not a bad guy for uh, storytelling this game. Um, I also then took a turn at running this game as well and adored it, right? It's very easy to fall in love with this book, and it makes it real easy. Um, I thought Ray turned around and took a history course in Rome to hit all this stuff that made me enjoy what I, what I liked here. I did. But then I came to realize it's because it's in the book. It's in the book, and you can play it out and parse it out because my rule was if we're playing in something and it's in a book, don't let me read it. Tell me what I can make out of it so I can enjoy the story from you. And you could do that. Very smooth story. Very easy to get into. I like Centurions. That was fun. The decadence, the bathhouses, the intrigue. All that was there. Now, that means that anybody can pick up this book and can just get into it. And it's not to take away from him, but my old adage, I still hold to it. Whenever you do a module game or you do a game where most of this is already built, everybody's an expert. They just got to apply it. Right? So that's why I'm, I'm typically not one to go with it either. You guys know me, but at the same time, I know the value of it. And this book makes it to where very easily you can stand and make an epic, badass story from this. What I enjoy about it, you mentioned a flashback, DJ. It's exactly what I used for the game I ran. And only reason why, nice. only reason why I bring it up at all is because I'm smiling about it. And uh, I remember the players keeping journals, right? Was a thing done. Admittedly, it's something that was mentioned that you could do in Requiem anyway. Right, an idea of a, of a torpid yeah. journal. And where I did was I piggybacked off of what Ray did. Right, He told us he's going to jump through time and you know keep the kind of journal what you want and go through. It was kind of fun to do. It was real fun to do. Uh, but what, epically, what I enjoyed doing off of that was I kept a counter journal to what the players had as a storyteller. I put in there exactly what they did. They put down what they thought they would do. And as often that happens, an ST might get a different read off of what you did. And I put down what did happen. And then from there, it was the players discovering about themselves and what they had going on. As the result, you got to watch players go, I did what again? And have to fight through that. And trust mm. me, every one of them loved it. It became a mystery of themselves they had to find out. Like the movie Memento, right? Where you go along with that guy, like, what did I do? You know, finding out that you sacked a town and why everybody hates you and curses your name is because you bear a resemble to a guy who came through and did just that, only to realize you did do just that. 
and you're having issues understanding it, but finding your writings and the mindset you were in and what you could have done. It was a blast to do that and force it through because the player who did it fancied themselves to be a priest in the modern. That they could uphold the word of Christ. They've done no wrong. They didn't commit the cardinal sin out of any other reason than the beast made me do it. To learn that they were a killer's killer and they had no problem doing it back in the day was everything to set this up. But it was already set up, preordained, the idea of how that might happen. And when you do it in a flashback sense, that makes it to where when you're finally done playing in Rome and catch up to whatever area you're going to pick up at where the players are now in real time, they get to carry that weight and move with it. What happens is your characters feel they're that ancient they said they were going to be by the time you catch up to it. That's the benefit of it. And it's great to have a history book already written that has that in there. However, I'm still trying to figure out something here. With the history related to vampires and whatnot, you guys do the Requiem thing. How did you feel that they just cut covenants entirely out of this book? I think it made sense uh, with this, and I'll, I'll tell you why. At at this point, Rome is it, Rome was not the first city in existence, right? That that goes that concept goes all the way back to like Mesopotamia times. It was the first city to reach a million people. It was one of the most it. I was going to say one of the most, but probably is the most technologically advanced city at its time. Everything that happened in the Roman Empire centered on Rome and covenants, as we've discussed before. And covenants aren't worldwide spanning organizations. They're like philosophies, right? They're like edicts. There's there's principles behind it, not necessarily structure. But in Rome, that's not needed. That's not cared about. The structure there is Rome itself. So it made sense to me that the Camarilla, the which I think means like small chamber, was based off of the Roman Senate. That it's the Roman Senate that commands everything, makes those decisions, and everything else about the all-night society of this time is a dark reflection of Rome itself. It's it's funny you should mention that because I view it a little bit differently. And the reason I say that is because to me, the most striking figures in this book are probably the Julii. And the reason why is because they carry so much of that pomp and circumstance to their name that they are descendants of, of uh, Remus. And because they are descendants of Remus, they are the ones that founded the Camarilla. And because they are the ones that founded the Camarilla and Rome still stands, they too are an analogy on the undead portion of it because Rome Rome almost made no difference between the living and the dead at one point. They were hand-in-hand -hand, uh, kinship to it. So, so long as Rome stood, so did the Julii. And because the Julii stood, this is why you had no reason to have any covenants. Once again, the Camarilla was as strong as it was. You know, in the future, we recognize that covenants existed because the Camarilla could not sustain itself. And so having such a big thing again, people are like, nope, we're not doing this all over again. But at that time, the Julii were it. And I, that's that's what I make much more of a relationship to at that point. And, and the Julii, also their existence, bring a hallmark back to the fact that, you know, the Dave and the Nosferatu, as you know them, most likely... They're, they're not the original, right? right? They say that flat out. Right. They pretty much highlight that's, by the time they get to Rome, they're called that. No, the, the, the origins are still playable. There's still room for that uh, to be in existence. Because like you said, Rome discovers the Nile and then it's like, oh, look, Egypt's here, except Egypt's existed, right? It's been there mm -hmm. doing its thing. <laughs> and when you're talking about the most advanced civilization, Rome wasn't the most advanced. They're the most populous, the most dominating, but Egypt was pretty swank as well doing what they got to do, right? I mean, we're down, they had textbooks, for God's sake. They had hospitals and whatnot. 
they were they're advanced for what they had, but the problem is their 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 livelihood was all on the Nile, and they didn't see a need to expand outward yet, right? Because it was enough where it was. Now, what does that mean to Kindred? We don't know. That book wasn't written, but we can get the inference. Mm. Where basically the pot, you know, like back in the day, if you were near somewhere that had your water source, your food source, and all your food gathers around in one area to grow from there, we need to hit a growth point that forces to go outward in order to decide to do that. They hadn't hit there yet. Definitely growing though, and they had the land to do it in. But when you look at Rome, Rome's growth was conquest. That's how it did what it did. Join or die, we are legion. And that's very much where those thoughts and phrases come from, because that was the mindset, you know, and that's and that's what made Rome its power. Now, when you translate that to the Julii, you you should there should be a level of fear you have with that. To play a Julii is not a belief that you're arrogant, it's a belief that you are better than everyone, because you are. You understand? Right. You play a Julii without contest, you're you're the blood of some of the greatest vampires that walked. Right? Without contention, so much so. That if anybody claims that they're part, part of the Invictus even is to say that, oh, they're like the Camarilla. Well, true and false, right? There are haunted aspects mm-hmm. that exist in the Invictus that did once exist in the Camarilla. However, no matter what the Invictus would want to claim, you have a similarity. But someone from Rome and modern would never understand what the Invictus was, right? You're a pale comparison by any stretch of the imagination. However, so too can be said of the Ventura. The venture domineering. The venture are this this dominance incarnate, in fact, and they're the leaders without noblesse oblige, all that. <coughs> Excuse me. Fantastic. But the Julii, there's a difference between I'm I can I'm dominating, I rule, alpha male, we're the ones that should be. And conquest, and right? No, there's a stark no, difference. I'm born. I'm simply yep. better than you. Mm. There isn't a maybe. My every gesture, my every word, the way I walk, the way I look, the wealth I have the power in my blood, the strength if you oppose me. You're not just going to lose. You will be utterly annihilated for opposing me. Why? You were nothing but mud people in the woods until my family, the Julii, gave you an empire to sit in, of which you get to be a part. Or even recognized you. Right. Exactly. It was my will that even just thought to say, you have a place at our, our seating, which is also like the Peregrine Collegia, right? Yes. They didn't need to exist. But they had they simply by simply acknowledging them that's power. But so even like name something is power. But if you're the Julia, you knew one thing. Well, we're nothing if yeah. we have nobody to rule over. Well, how? <laughs> that's also true. How? And, and Rome had the same mentality. It, well, who's gonna yeah. who's gonna carry the boats and the logs in Rome? Right? Who's gonna <laughs> do that? Well, we make them all David Goggins. Right? That's what we do. What we make soldiers out of them. We make everybody believe they're an indomitable force that we forge and we mold. And we have them running out there doing the most extreme things for us because that's what we want. And we make a place for the Legio Mortum or the Centurions and the Legions. And we do that. However, hmm, who do we want to sit in our Senate? Well, what do you think? Says the power in Julii and thus the original Senate. And they say, I don't want people who don't understand what it is to bleed for Rome. We started that way. So you have to be an old soldier, somebody who worked and bled and earned your wealth through conquest or growing fields, or whatever land you have leftover slave ownership in the nine, you moved up to the top. Then we make you, then we pluck you from the masses. We see you now. Welcome to the Senate or the Senex in this regard. And you can sit amongst us. But now that you sit amongst the Senate, are you still us? Not at all. Not at all. You're not, you're not Julii, but you're here. Hi. And that's fine. You're new money. Right. Exactly. Mm. And there you go. 
Now, what's interesting about that, as you look at the Peregrine Collegia, those, those folks had something to be mad about, right? And then the same thing that normal Roman citizens were pissed off about. Bread and circuses is a thing with Rome. It's a quote they have in there where it says that if you want to stay in power as long as possible, you convince people that are part of something as great as you are, right? So I've got to give them something. So we say, call yourself a citizen when you work for Rome, whether you be soldier or, or, or whatever. And, and that's what you do. And you work for us, and that's great. Everyone outside of you is nothing. They're garbage. But that's why everyone's permitted slaves who can afford them. Throughout the empire, you will have those that will never be Roman. They will never be there. But be property is even its own reward. Somewhere safe. You get food. We'll protect you, provided you serve and in service. Absolute. Keep your silence, because you're to be seen, not heard. And that's the typical mentality of the slaves in Rome, and worse. And because of that... You can watch shows to showcase this, and they're great with the representations in here, but they didn't have the TV show Spartacus, which I still think is a great show to watch if you want to get that hatred as to why is why the slaves hated Rome, period, right? You may think to yourself, I don't need a movie to tell me why a slave would hate their masters. You do. You sincerely do. Because when you see it, it's shocking. It's incredibly shocking. And what the life might have been there. There's a movie, Spartacus, that they mentioned in here that you could watch and see that same feel. HBO, HBO and the BBC teamed up and they have a show. I believe it's called even The Fall of Rome, if I'm correct. It's two seasons, something like that. It's just, it's uh, Rome. Two seasons. It was the Game of Thrones before they knew they had enough money to do something like Game of Thrones. It was epic. It's, it was great to, to, to watch that too. I've seen that a long time ago, though. But then there's other movies you can watch, like The Eagle. Right, there's a story, and I believe the Eagles more is the story of the Seventh Legion and how they vanish. So if you don't know the story, basically it's a scouting group that goes out, and I believe it was uh the time of Caesar. They they sent him out to go do something. It's the great embarrassment where the Legion disappears completely. And they don't know why it why it happened. Right? It was beyond Hadrian's Wall. I believe it was the reason the wall gets built. It's something like that. But the cool part about that is understanding what a Roman soldier's life would have been and what they go through and what honor really meant to them. Because I'm going to promise you this, they may not have had the morality, they did know what honor was, and their name meant something. In fact, it was everything to a Roman. To lose face was the ultimate humiliation, worth suicide. You know, in that society, suicide was not considered a bad thing. If you lose face so severe, you're trying to re-honor yourself in the eyes of your ancestors type thing, and that's that's what you do, right? And that's perfectly acceptable. That was So you did, and we move on. However, that movie goes epic. And it goes into who the, who opposed them, right? You get to see some of the tribes that actually rebelled against them and wanted to, well, actually swallowed the Legion and why they might have done it and what they faced and why that wall was put in place because the fear established outside and beyond that wall. Now, history is going to teach you a lot of that way more accurate than I have it there. I'm just titillating. Letting you know the movies like that, the actual story is pretty dope too uh, to read what goes on. But that's about the standard, right? That eagle standard that's everything. You do not take that, right? That's one of those things. If they lose that, it's like a weird spiritual belief that the army's weakened because they don't have their standard and they must get it back. And so capture the flag, you wonder its origins, right? And I sit there and go, now it makes sense a little bit. You know, it's not about whether or not you retain your flag. Of course you can do that. But it's all about what fury that you get whipped up into when someone dares has the audacity to take what's yours and what you will do to get it back. That's an epic thing, kind of a fun thing too. But now I think in the length and breadth of those stories and those inspirations, here's a book where you have it. Where do your players want to come in at? Do you want to be the peregrine, right? Where you're opposing these monsters 
who, by the way, most of them are mortal, walking around telling you yep. your place at night. Can you imagine that? There's a gigantic party held in an estate held by a senator's wife, and they're in charge of the bathhouses of Rome. And they decide to invite all sorts of friends out for all sorts of decadence and rooms and parties. And everybody goes there. It's all the rage. Everyone's having fun. And all of a sudden, Caesar decides it's time to go there. What do you do? Well, if you're a vampire, don't I got to get the F out? Isn't this where I leave? You Caesar can't see that I'm here. I'm a deva. I'm going to draw that attention. <laughs> Why? Because the Caesar I'm referring to is not Julius. We're not referring to him. Right? The Julii would, would have been offended. Like, why would I be there? That's like a Julii special, right? You ain't going to have that. What I'm talking about, in walks Caligula. You think I want to be at Little Boots's party? You are out of your mind. I don't care if I'm a vampire in that end. I'm going to be like, I am not getting chosen for anything he has in mind. Frenzy is assured. I'm going to obfuscate my ass obfuscate, up out of here. <laughs> yeah, I got an ill win. I got, I got like the Deva bubble guts, right? That sends me out of here packing quick and in a hurry, right? And it's... That's a hell of a devotion. Right? But, but let's say it's a little different. You're invited <laughs> to this banquet and you're a slave. And you're a vampire. You have to play to the role that you were given. That's the type of intrigues that can happen. Because what if you're an Asferatu and you have to be a spy and you're, and you're doing just that? And you have to witness this decadence. How can you stomach it? Can you stomach it? And you're forced to see it. What if you're ordered to participate? A very dangerous role to play is when you're a right. slave there, right? You don't get a say. You can't say no. That's what's there. You, Snaggletooth, over here. And poor Nosferatu's like, I like this one. He's got a look in his eye. Caesar, his eye is drooping. Even better. I could do more with that than I can with the suit. <laughs> Bring him to me. I'm tired of beautiful. I want something horrific. Oh, well, Jesus. about that. There's an interesting rumor I read, too, which I rather enjoy. It is said that Cleopatra was so decadent, she took a pearl and dropped it in a cup of vinegar. And it completely dissolved, and she drank that horrid concoction because she could, was the point. Very expensive pearl. It is said that Caligula did the same thing, but he also did one better. He drank that, realized he could, and not wanted to be outdone. He then had where he melted down gold and had golden bread placed out at a banquet for people to eat. Like golden yeah. flaked bread? Golden bread. Now, why did he do that? Well, because there was a famine going on, too, by the way. Yeah, exactly. It's exactly. So what are you going to do? Like I sat there and said, I'm a pretty dark guy. I'm a pretty dark guy. I love dark things. You want me to outdo that? Are you serious? Well, how about a banquet of Nero? Who Nero, who said, you know what? They say I started the great fire. But hold on. You can't prove it. You can't prove I did it. Wait a minute. Someone accused me of playing a trumpet while the city burned? I may have done that. What was I going to do? It was on fire. It was everywhere. I had to entertain the masses. Okay, okay, okay. I shouldn't do that. No, no, everybody, please. I'm the Nero you knew and loved. I'm the Nero that did bring you food when you needed it when I was younger. I'm the Nero that did lead you to success. I'm the Nero that lowered your taxes. I'm the Nero that fed everybody back in the day. Hey, here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm going to do. Kill all the Christians. What's it? Kill them all. They're the ones who started the fire. What? Yeah, they totally did. Why else would I kill them in order of their death? Isn't that cool? Yeah. Um, but But take their fat. Those you kill, I want you to remove their fat and make candles out of them. Why? So at my next banquet, where we talk about what villains they are, we can actually talk about their religion. I thought these were the people that should have turned the other cheek. Yeah, come to that banquet. What would that have looked like? Right? You want to talk about decadence. Why? why? That's an insane thing. I can't, un like, my morality is so jilted in that, and it's like, I'm so like, why didn't anybody kill that guy a lot sooner? 
right? I'm terrible to say that. It feels horrible I even mentioning it, but I'm thinking to myself, he did what? Right? Did he? And nobody knows if he set the fire, but they say maybe, right? Ill favored people are complaining, give him a tragedy, and then understand that now, right? You're you have people who are a fan of 9-11 conspiracies, you say. You know why that happened, and it was because the president's popularity wasn't where it needed to be, and we needed everybody to rally around a tragedy that that brings patriotism up. You challenge our patriotism as uh, as Americans. Oh man, we're going to show you some fury, right? We believe in our nation when the chips are down. That's what it did, and it was a very scary thing. However, that's just a rumor, right? Not only that, it's not even founded. It's like a lot of people are going to tell you to the contrary. But now I'm thinking back to Rome, and I'm thinking back to Nero, and I'm thinking back <coughs> when he was losing favor, and he didn't have it. A fire broke out. Now imagine if we didn't know nothing related to him and he came in and said, you know what? I found out who did it. Unfortunately, I know it was the Christians. I thought you were better than this. Yeah. Get the Orions and their Orionism and get uh, the Christians and uh, we have to get rid of them. Why? Because they did this to Rome. I can't believe they did this after all we did for them. Meanwhile, you have the Catholics going, you mean crucifying Christ? All you did for us, right? You know, like what? And then would you have that religion now? And it's an interesting question. This book elicits a lot of those thoughts and ideas when you get to kind of trip through history with that and how that might change. But but I'm admitting to you both, this is how easy it happens. I warned you it was going to happen. We were going to talk about this. And I said, you both are explicitly here to keep me on task. I'm looking at our outline. This is where we're supposed to be. And we're over here in the weeds where I can glom and talk and love and story and do everything. And you're right there. But it's not bad because when you think about it as well, right, this has to also, for as much as you're glomming, this is also one of the things that doesn't get glommed over on the masquerade end. At least this is why this book also shines in its own way. There's always this idea of what you believe the Dark Ages would have been like. And especially if your vampires at that point in time were kind of going through it. There's a, a lot more focus on, in previous books, the roads and why they kind of shape themselves to be that way. But it's always in a weird context for me anyway when I read it because it's like, you were born to do this and so you shall act as such. But yet, you're working with a system that works off of humanity. And these vampires in Rome are based off of that humanity at the time that it existed. Now you're playing such a stark contrast. The road of sin is the road of humanity at this moment in time if you're trying to make some sort of comparison. Now imagine playing a campaign through this and the horror. Now you have a personal horror as the player to attempt to live through it and find normalcy amongst them all. How much harder is it to play a member of the Senex versus a person who's probably now playing a member of the Peregrine Collegia? And this is where you start seeing the inklings of what authors were probably trying to break into you as terms of like how horrible the camera is versus the Anarchs. But this is the setting. This is an existence. Whole, this is painted so lightly. But that pales. It seems it seems bullshit when you can you can you can bite in the real problem. I'm saying BS in the fact right. that it's pale, not that that's not a good idea. But if you of course, no, but no, if no, you course. settle for just the vampiric part, you're going to cut out a simple fact. You now get to play a part in history. How many times you read or hear about Roman go? Uh, Carthago de Lendo S, the worst tragedy in military history that you read about, where they do the horrible atrocities they inflict upon a town based on the hype from the Senate, right? That's that's what happened from it, right? One senator, in fact, is noted in history as calling out for their destruction. What a terrible group they are. And their crime? They were good fishermen and trade. That was their crime. They were afraid they were going to rival Rome, and so Rome annihilated them in the worst of capacities, Right. I've talked about this numerous times. It's one of the most horrific things I read about that actually happened. And now you're thinking about it and I'm going, but I'm not looking at the weight and responsibility 
to be at the head of that tiger. Never forget to lead a people is to be at the front of your killer. The ones who grant you such benefit and riches are the same people who will devour your flesh and rip you apart when they don't get what they want. Not what they need, what they want. It is a tragic truth that a mass of people do not know what they need. They only know what they want. A smart ruler understands what they need, hears what they want, and they grant illusions, right? They create entertainments for you to give you a semblance of what you want, but then understand your needs of food, of space, of a place to put your family, a place to breed, to grow. You need those things. Because if you're not able to do that, quickly your mood sours and you become the assassins from within where you once supported my republic. And that's what goes on. And so when you sit up at the peregrine and you're like, oh, these people are terrible, or here's what I hear a lot of, eat the rich. And I chuckle every time I hear it. Because the people saying eat the rich are the people who just want instant gratification. If you gave anybody who says that, if you gave them $30 million, suddenly it's not eat the rich. Suddenly they go, well, the rich aren't that bad. Mm. Right? And they're easily met. Now, why do they say <laughs> that? You just hit them with the biggest opiate in the world. They're free of financial worry. And oh, man. Oh, right? Shit. The grass. Exactly. Now, is it greener? Then they're going to realize a horrific truth. Now that we're up there and we didn't earn it, and it's just what we have. We have no concept of what to do with ourselves. What do they become? Well, let me ask you something. Look at the emperors and what happened to them when they were by birth just given what they had. Look in history when royalty was just given what they had. They didn't have to work for it, right? They didn't understand. The idea and concepts of medieval times is that they interject, well, inject, excuse me, the concept that you have a responsibility as a ruler. I'm not saying that that was never there. It existed in Rome as it exists anywhere else. But what Rome taught you is that when it's smaller and it's a republic, this is doable. Because we do have we do have the masses that represent the people that we put up in the Senate to represent the whole. This works. We all have a say and we can discuss it. But as you get to millions or hundreds of thousands or whatever you want to say, suddenly, how is it possible that we're going to hear everybody out? How does that work? When you think of it that way, now be that member in that Senate or be a member of the Senate, however you want to look at it. And you sit there with the weight on your shoulders when... You're the one with the olive crops, and you're the one who has a winery on top of it, and you're the one whose people are making bread because you invested in it across the vast empire, and you can't possibly make enough to offset the growth as you've conquered another country. And that's more mouths to feed as more slaves get brought in because slaves are a commodity. And people forget that. Right. Slaves are a drain on the resources of a nation because it's still mouths to feed. They need a place. They need to be warm. Same thing. And they're going to birth and grow. And granted, you see them as currency. Because they allow you a certain decadence, but there's a responsibility to it. And they all knew slaves at a point are going to be able to do something to you, right? They outnumber you. But that's why they started having what? Armies. And they funded their own. And they did it separately, right? I fully fund, as a member of a center, my entire legion I offer to Rome. And I have that. And I have that support. And that's what they had to do. Why I say that is because it's a frightening prospect when you're in charge of all that. How could you begin to understand uh, you call me cold and you say that I'm cruel and that I'm a tyrant because I burned the poor section down in the city that we just couldn't do it. But you are the same people who came to me when they were alive and said, there's not enough fish, there's not enough grain, and this winter, thousands are going to die and you're already riding and killing each other over it. So yes, you're damn right I set that section on fire and they died. Their sacrifice will be remembered, but your belly is fed. Get out of my court. Right. You've been heard and I've been answered and I'm the one that's going to burn 
for what I have done. But you're welcome. I can't even begin to want to even be that person who gets to sit there and make that choice. But I do understand because we all are on the other side of that. We do understand politics and we're on the other side of that where we just get to vote and we hope for the best, right? And that's where it is. But to role play those roles in the same group, like you just said, man, we can't just give the excuse, oh, we're vampires. Yeah, no, you can't. Right? You got to slice that into it because that's the excitement of the game. That's when you're like, oh, man, that's a heavy call. What are you going to do? I would love to turn to you, DJ, as you decided it was fun to be the Lord of Bathhouses. But to be at that, right? To be at that point where, what do you mean another bathhouse is clogged? Yeah. um, As it turns out, there was an earthquake. We're not getting the runoff from a mountain like we should. It's it's clogged. The thaw didn't happen. Whatever it is. And now one of your bathhouses sits kind of dry because there's, well, you need to come see this. Right? And and what happened? Someone killed an X amount of people or a dead horse to get back at you and stuffed it and clogged it up there. And you got to take apart the whole system to rip it out, which is going to cost money that you don't have. And how are you going to do it? And you're going to go to work to do like too much, too much. Right? I could go with stories for what could happen, man. And you could only imagine, right? It was like, I have the dominus of this arena coming very shortly and it's stable. And I have two weeks. Get rid of the horse. Make it happen. But sir, the slaves, fuck the slaves. Right. Get out of it. <laughs> do it. I got to do something because why? We don't want Caesar to come by. Who, the head of the Knight right. Society? No, Caesar. Why? The entire Knight Society is the Julii said, you never want Caesar to come here. Why? Because we will let Caesar, we will hold you down and let Caesar do whatever. Why? Because all hinges on that. Their strength of the empire built in the Knight Society depends on the mortals who are upholding it. And you can clearly see that's how it goes. So it's like, if he goes there, you better be out like Trout. You better be someone who doesn't need to be around. I'm all good. Let me see you later. And and we'll get into that. In fact, I'm going to tell you now, I know we got to stop and we don't want to. I also know that we still want to go over the history, right? I'm fully going to let everybody know. This is part one and we failed. We failed to get through your forward, Kenneth. Okay? We, we failed. Yeah. Your forward hyped us up to talk about this book, to do a part one, to tell everybody how freaking great it is. And, and this, this book is amazing. Everyone here did an amazing job in this book, right? It's just outstanding. I can't even... This is my favorite book, right? And here's the truth of it, too. When you roll through it, and we're going to go through it, right? we got two more episodes to give you something uh, to talk a little bit about these histories more in depth, to calm down a little bit and focus and let that passion for, like the founding of Remus and Romulus and how they weave that story in with the artwork. Oh, I refuse to pass it up. I would fail as the head of the helm here for 25 years if I went through that like I'd happen and move on. It is not that simple. It's cool to hear about it. And they bring life to light there. And we're going to start there when we get back, right? The founding of Rome and why it happened and the parts that they tell you to highlight on. And we'll get that. But that's going to be in not two weeks because, uh, yeah, no, hang on. Next week we're going to do where we'll be. In two weeks we'll get to that. That's where we'll officially start that. And uh, we'll let you know more from there. Uh, thank you, everybody. Uh, tune in next time. We're excited to do this as we do Rome Part 2 or what we call Rome 1A, The Start. Ugh. We love the book. Go get it. Please go get it so you can read along with us when we go to go into it going forward. Appreciate everybody. Thank you both, and you're shackled to me now. The journey's begun. Of course. Take it easy, folks. <laughs> See you later. Thank you for listening to our 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast. If you liked what you heard, please reach out and let us know on Twitter at 25 Years of VTM at our email info at 25yearsvtm.com 
on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash 25 years VTM or on our website www.25yearsvtm.com If you would like to support us, we can be found at patreon.com slash 25 years of Vampire the Masquerade.